Did you know that the Pop Culture Preservation Society is on Patreon? Patreon allows you to support our work by becoming dues-paying members of our society. We are an independent, women-run endeavor with a commitment to delivering the highest quality listening experience to our community. And so we've taught ourselves how to record, edit, and produce a podcast in midlife, a time when most of us are asking our kids how to regram a TikTok so that we can deliver episodes that truly speak to you. Support from PCPS patrons means that we can devote more of our time and resources to the content, sources, equipment, software, hosting, and research that you've come to depend on without worrying about how to pay the bills. So thank you. We appreciate you from the bottom of our bell-bottomed hearts. I have one song to talk about on this album, and it's How Deep Is Your Love. Does everyone have half an hour and like a cigarette for me for after I talk about it? Hello world, it's a song that we're singing Come on, get happy A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing We'll make you happy Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who use flashlights and a record player to make discos in the basement. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll continue our discussion of the movie Saturday Night Fever with a deep dive on the soundtrack that changed the entire landscape of music. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. You guys, it is so freaking cold this weekend, this past Mm -hmm. week. Yes, you're not kidding. And yesterday, I have to laugh because um, I've got a lot of friends in Texas. And one of those friends recently retired to um, Lake Lure, North Carolina. And her post was, it's frigid. And I think it was like 34 degrees. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, my said, God. I see your North Carolina frigid, and I raise you a Minnesota frigid. And ours was at that point, what, minus 21 yesterday morning or yeah, something Yeah, it was crazy. like, feels like, it was negative 12, feels like negative 31 yesterday morning. And this is, this is, there's always about, well, there's about three months every year that I wonder why I live in Minnesota, and it's January, February, and March. But there's about two weeks of those three months <laughs> that it's like my entire soul freezes, and it's those days mm-hmm. where it's that cold. I will have to. I will say though, now that my kids are grown and gone, I don't have to get out of the house, so I don't leave no, on days like that. So it doesn't really for bother four me. Days, you guys. Well, what, yeah, I haven't left the house in do? four days, literally. Well, yeah, so I put him on a leash. To go potty. I put him on, Okay, well, that's true. I was on vacation, so I didn't um, – so he was at the kennel, so I didn't have to walk oh, the dog. Wow. That's why I could yeah. actually not go outside for four days. But where did I go on my vacation? I went four hours north of this frigid place <laughs> so that it was even more frigid. And what people don't understand, I think people in other places don't understand, is that if it's not below zero, it's not news here. Right. No, you know, God, like no. you're they're on the national news going and they'll have a high of 14 in Boston tomorrow. I'm like, not news. Yeah. That's not yeah. news. Do you remember no. when um, when uh, when we uh, first moved here and that was news to me when it was 14 degrees? And then very quickly mm-hmm. you learn that, no, even when it's 10 below, your kids still go to school. When there's 12 yep. inches of snow, your kids still go to school. You're the school districts here. Um, for those of you listening. Um, they cancel school if the wind chill 
the temperature or the wind chill is 25 below because of the kids that have to wait for the bus. So let's just put this in perspective. If the wind chill or the temperature is 18 below zero, school's not canceled and your kids still have to wait outside for the bus. So it's, it is a, we're, we're hardy up here in Minnesota. Can I tell you a funny story? Please. So we lived in New Hampshire for a time, New Hampshire, which has snow, right? Mm -hmm. That's a cold place. That's in the North. And, um, Liam and I are waiting outside for the bus after some snowfall, and the bus didn't come. And I'm like, damn it. Did we miss the bus? I'm like, hurry, hurry, get in the car. So I get him in the car. I speed my way to school. I go careening into the driveway. (laughs) I pull up to the door, and there's a sign that says school is canceled today. And I'm like, oh, no. Did the pipes oh, yeah. burst? Was there a gas leak? What happened? Two so inches of drive snow. Home. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out. I'm like calling <gasps> school to find out. Is it on the news? What happened? Snow. But what? But and what is it like? Two inches so, of snow, probably. It, yeah, literally. I there was no problem with me getting in my car and driving him to school. Like I didn't right. give it a second thought, and it's canceled. And so Isn't there was funny? this mind meld of activity when I'm sitting there looking at the at the sign. I'm like, huh. <laughs> Yeah. And everyone around us did actually, and I'm talking New Hampshire. This is not South Carolina. Everyone's like, oh, everybody stay inside. I'm like, well, I'm going to the store. <laughs> um, shall we get on with the show? Let's get on with the show. Yeah, probably. Let's do it. Welcome back to our discussion of Saturday Night Fever. In our previous episode, we spent some time talking about the movie, the origin, the story, the cast, the themes, the dancing. And to get the full benefit of today's episode, you'll want to make sure to listen to that episode first. Because in truth, the engine that drove that story and also drove this movie to break box office records was the soundtrack. In fact, it has been said that this movie belongs to the Bee Gees as much as it belongs to John Travolta. soundtrack is the primary reason that we as children had access to this very dark and disturbing rated R movie. We couldn't go to a rated R movie, so how did we all know about it? Why were we all practicing the bus stop at recess? It's because of the soundtrack. For sure. Oh, Oh, yes. The poster to me, the movie poster is iconic, but Mm -hmm, it's the mm -hmm. album cover that I feel like is more tattooed on my brain with all of them there, you know, where you've got the Bee Gees, like bigger than John Travolta, but you've still got the pointing the finger, but you've got the Bee Gees. And I just feel like, and we'll talk about that album cover in a minute, but, um, you know, the soundtrack, you guys, it was the thing to listen to. And for me, the songs are vital, um, roller rink memories, like, Oh, almost God. all those for BG songs sure. are either yeah. slow dance, oh, you know, a couple skate yes. songs or roller rink memories. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I got to say, I think I've addressed this before, but I have a real mixed relationship with this album. I love the music and I would never miss a chance to belt out staying alive or jump on the dance floor when Night Fever is playing. But it also makes me really sad. And I think in oh. our sad songs episode, I mentioned that. Night Fever is a song that makes me sad. And the reason is, is this album was super popular uh, during a time that we found out we were moving right. from Texas to New Jersey. And we knew like six months ahead of the actual move that this move was upcoming. So I spent really the second half of my seventh grade year with this knowledge of I'm moving, I'm leaving these friends. 
And this was the soundtrack to that mm-hmm. whole time of, um, of my life. And I have a specific memory of staying with a friend for a couple days while my parents went to New Jersey to house hunt. And I can remember sitting on the floor of her bedroom, listening to the soundtrack on the turntable, looking through the album and the album cover and the liner notes. And so when I hear this song, it's really tin or any of these songs tinged with this kind of element of sadness. Mm-hmm. It's bittersweet and, for you. Um, yeah. It's All the I soundtrack to, is, to your melancholy. It is. I just mm-hmm. have to play. I mean, you took take, you took the words right out of well, my and mouth. Well, Carolyn, you said seventh grade, right? Yeah, that's such a huge, huge year for yeah. so much is going on, and you you throw in then you're moving, and then you've got you know this the the memories of having to leave your friends and everything, and for sure that that the, the music you were listening yeah. to at the time becomes something that represents all of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like the sound of the world changing. Your world right. was changing, oh, but the whole wow. world was changing. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people will yeah. say that was for good and some people will not. So I think for just a quick introduction to this soundtrack and where we were in the world at the time, let's check in with the PCPS's personal music guru, Amy Lively, from the podcast For the Record, the 70s. Amy's currently working on a project about the most essential songs of the disco era, and the Bee Gees are bound to be all over that list. Mm -hmm. So here's what Amy had to say about the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. What Saturday Night Fever does with its mix of new and previously released songs is it creates a flavor of disco that has broad appeal, including at least for a little while early in 1978 in the dance clubs. I think most people who bought the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack were not going out to the clubs on weekends I think they bought it because even if you want to make the case that it isn't real disco, it is still great music. In the very first episode of For the Record, the 70s, Disco Doesn't Suck, I talked about the evolution of disco throughout the decade, for better or worse. No doubt it changed, and it changed quickly, but that doesn't mean that all of the change was bad. I mean, 25 straight weeks at number one, Six hit singles. Uh, it was a Grammy winner, second only to the Bodyguard soundtrack in all time sales. And by the way, my opinion is that the Bodyguard, that the strength of the sales was largely on the strength of one very famous song. It's really hard to argue with the significance of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. So that is a really great point. Yes, the Bodyguard outsold Saturday Night Fever eventually. But can you tell me any other song on that album besides I, 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 Will Always Love You? I thought that too. I was like, I call foul when Amy gave us that that fact. I was like, there's no way because is there another song on the Bodyguard soundtrack besides I Will Always Love You? I know. Actually, yes. Actually, I looked. Some of Whitney Houston's best hits are actually Mm -hmm. on that album. Okay. So Amy also um, told us that the Bee Gees at this time were going through a reinvention. And that's certainly true. So here, let me just give you a total nutshell version. And you guys, if you want more, please watch the Bee Gees documentary on HBO Max and or listen to our podcast episode from December 2019 on that documentary and on the Bee Gees. Um, But in 1976, the Bee Gees were pretty much done. They'd had so many successes early on, but the 70s were tough. And by 1975, they were actually kind of blacklisted. In fact, uh, they were touring the only two places they were still popular. Do you guys want to guess where those were? I'm going to say, I'm going to say 
Japan. Okay. I'm going to say Germany. Malaysia and Venezuela. (laughs) Those were the only two places where they were still popular by 1975. So in 1975, at the urging of, interestingly enough, Eric Clapton, the Bee Gees turned to disco, Barry discovers his falsetto, they release Jive Talkin' on their album Main Course, and then things just start domino affecting from there. Well, and they kind of, they will to this day, the Bee Gees will say, no, 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 it wasn't disco. We were turning toward R&B. And yeah. we, as the American public, were like, this is disco. Well, so true, like Amy said, this was this disco or was this disco light? It was mainstream disco. Yeah, and I, I think Main Course, their album Main Course, wasn't there like that was the first time they got on like the R&B charts or something was with. Yeah, that um, was really yeah. their comeback. That was the beginning, yeah. just the the little seed of their comeback because that was their new R&B sound. And um it is often cited, Main Course is often cited as the best Bee Gees album by True Blue Bee Gees fans. And that was released in 1975. They were just becoming, you know, trying to get out of their slump. And this was the album that gave us Nights on Broadway, Fanny Be Tender. I love that song. <laughs> Fanny Be Tender with my... Um, but it also gave us Jive Talking, which ended mm-hmm. up on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. So if you think about it, so the Main Course album kind of laid the foundation for the sound on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and actually set them up for the music that they'd be recording for the rest of the 70s. It's a really good album. The marriage, actually, the marriage of the Bee Gees plus Saturday Night Fever was so perfect, you might assume that these two things, the soundtrack and the movie, were created in Mm -hmm. tandem. But in actuality, the movie was deep into production. It was nearly all of the filming was done by the time Robert Stigwood, the producer, approached the Bee Gees. Wow. Um, Robert Stigwood was also the Bee Gees um, manager. So none, you guys, this is going to blow your minds. None of the Bee Gees songs were used for the dance scenes. They were dubbed in after filming with just one exception. I should say all the scenes, not even the dance scenes. None of the Bee Gees songs were used for the scenes in the movie with just one exception. And I will reveal that later in the episode. Isn't that crazy? How did they get the beats to match and to sync up? It's crazy. I know. It's crazy. Um, so all of the all of the famous dance scenes were shot to either Stevie Wonder or Boskags <laughs> instead. And in fact, Tony and Stephanie's famous dance floor um, and rehearsal scenes were shot to the song specifically Lowdown by Boz Skaggs. Okay, does Lowdown <laughs> give you any indication that it's time to hit the dance floor? No. At all? And had that had those songs stuck. The movie would not have been the hit it was at all. It's a different movie. Mm. It's a different movie. It's a movie. completely different movie. Okay, yeah, okay, so here... Wait, can I oh, ask sorry, just, Carolyn, go I ahead. I want to ask just one question about Lowdown. Was that the one they were going to keep in the movie, or was that mm-hmm. just always one that was like a placeholder, and they knew eventually they were going to put something else in? They planned no, on keeping that in. They planned on keeping it. And Ugh. here is where, I don't know where this, where the miscommunication came from, but here is where the history is made. Boz Skaggs wouldn't give them clearance to use the song Lowdown because he thought he was going to get his own disco movie. He's like, wait, I need that song back. What? Wait, wait, someone what? sing Lowdown for disco. me. Someone sing Lowdown for me. I'm not hearing it in my head. Okay, that does not yeah. sound at all like Lowdown. No, I I'm love sorry. the song. Um, 
Oh shoot, Caroline! I'll put a clip in right there. When I Caroline, when I say someone sing a sing lowdown for me, put a clip in. And now, oh, you didn't like mine. You didn't. That didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm not. Um, Is it Lido? Oh no, wait, that's Lido. That's Lido, not lowdown. Lowdown is different. Okay, no, I was singing Lido also. Okay, so obviously, right there, that's a telltale sign (laughs) that this was not the appropriate music for this movie. Not at all. So he wouldn't. So he wouldn't give them clearance to use lowdown. He thinks he's getting his own disco movie with a non-disco song, whatever. And some people claim that. Once Boz Skaggs was out, there was an emergency phone call mm-hmm. by Robert Stigwood, the producer, to his clients, the Bee Gees, because they were in deep doo-doo with no music. At the time, the Bee Gees were holed up in a broken-down castle in France, trying to record their follow-up album to Main Course. If you thought all castles are nice, it's not true. So Robert Stigwood had a proposition for them. He said, I'm filming this little movie. It's about a guy swinging paint cans by day, and he's feeling important at the disco by night. Would you like to do the music? And the Bee Gees were completely unimpressed. They thought the story sounded stupid. But Robert Stigwood kept pushing. And he just casually kept asking, so, so what are you, what are you working on? Just tell me, what are you, what are you working on right now? Hmm? And according to the book Tragedy by author Jeff Apter, I just love that he says this, that cheeky little question would transform a gritty B-movie into a pop culture sensation. Mm-hmm. What are you working on? Just tell me. I know you don't want to be involved, but just tell me what are you working on? Wow. So they, he gave them the script and they wouldn't read it. They never read the script, never picked it up. All they know is paint cans, disco dancing. (laughs) And without even reading the script, they say, fine, here's what we're working on right now. And they send him these songs. Staying Alive, More Than a Woman, If I Can't Have You, and Night Fever. It's crazy when you hear the lyrics to those songs. Yes. Yes. Okay. God dippity. I mean, it's, uh-huh. um, that's it's just, not even that. It's almost like clairvoyancy, I'm thinking. I it's know. like they had to yes. almost be like some sort of weird mind readers to get those lyrics in there. It's faded, yes. you guys. It's like it's faded. And they even they even contributed to getting the name of the movie changed because the, um, the original name of the movie was Saturday Night. And Robert Stigwood said, we need a title track. Can you give me a song for a title track? And they said, well, what about Night Fever? And Robert Stigwood said, that's disgusting. That sounds pornographic. And oh, somehow had, the he, BG's- had he read his script? I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what, that's what he was like caught that's by? Right. That's, that's what, what was, that was his problem? <laughs> Is what you object to? My goodness, Robert Stigwood. So somehow the Bee Gees um, convince him that it's not pornographic. And the movie was eventually renamed Saturday Night Fever. Whoa. Wow. I mean, yeah. This was, as you said, just clairvoyant or something. I mean, just all of the factors that came together, things that didn't happen that made, I mean, the, the whole Boss Gags thing. If the Boss Gags had thing. said yes, yes. This, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. We no. wouldn't be having a podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't have been born. I- <laughs> <laughs> what would have been the soundtrack to my finding out I was moving to New Jersey? And would it have know. supplanted itself? Wait, would it have put itself down. in your brain? Lowdown is, is I'm sorry, Boss Kegs, I really do like Lowdown. However, is it that memorable that it would have been the soundtrack to your melancholy? No. 
it wouldn't have been the movie wouldn't have been what it was. Right. You know, we wouldn't have been sitting there on the floor looking at that album cover and everything. Yeah. It just yeah. Wow. Okay, so then we have the actual album itself. The the and when I say the actual album, I mean the tangible thing that you hold in mm-hmm. your hands. A thing that we don't have anymore unless right. you're a record collector. Yes, I'm actually holding that thing in my hand mm-hmm. as we speak. And everything about it is just iconic. I mean, we've got, as Michelle talked about a little bit earlier, the cover, okay? So I'm holding it up right now. We have got the Bee Gees clad in their beautiful white, oh, poor Robin in his white turtleneck, but they're um, cute white outfits. and they're Robin framed. in his white turtleneck. <laughs> that took me a minute. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Well, but it's honestly, like look like- at the way they're dressed. I'm looking at, um, I actually, I and I have mine too from when I was a kid, and I'm looking at um, Barry. It's like they're making such a statement in the way they dress these guys too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Robin kind of looks like he's a painter, that he's going to talk about your house <laughs> swinging a paint can. <laughs> He's like, looks like he has a jump. I think he has a jumpsuit on and this white turtleneck underneath. But they are definitely prominently displayed. They are framed in the center of the album cover. They are the cover of the album. They which are. We kind of forget, I think. We, we, we assume it's John Travolta. It's not. It's the Bee Gees. Well, right. And think of other movie um, soundtracks you see. You don't usually see the you know performers as so front and center. It's usually a scene from the movie um, that, that illustrates the. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. Robin well, let's does, not forget they're not the only. Is sort of like he's repairing an airplane or something. I was going to say, let's <laughs> not forget they're not the only artists on the album. So that's kind of sad for the right. other right. artists. I mean, they they give them some small pictures, but not not till the very right. back. That's true. There and are not more even pictures on the back, right? And not even all of them. Wait. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Keep yep. going. So Carolyn. maybe he, you're going to uh, talk about So that anyway, cause... the cover, we've got um, that iconic photo. And right below it is the other iconic photo from the movie. We have the multicolored lit-up disco floor with John Travolta, his white three-piece suit, and you guys, probably the most iconic pose. I'm not just going to say in movie history. I know. I'm going to say in art history. I'm like, the Mona Mm -hmm. Lisa... And maybe this photo. Oh, my the God. Finger if that could hang next yeah. to the Mona Lisa, that's yes. my world in a nutshell Gosh. right there. And, you know, so we've got, yes, the right hand up in the air with the – or the right arm and his finger pointing up. That move that how many of us have made, um, right. not just on a dance floor. And Yeah, it's my about, go-to. Yeah, and it's a touchstone. <laughs> Anybody it is. It's can a do cultural touch. Yeah. Could, the, could a pose be in the Smithsonian? Right. Because if a pose could be in the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. this would be there. And this pose was kind of a joke. I don't know if you read anything about this pose. No. But they, a photographer came and it had been a long day and was just asking for, you know, John to do some other things. And he kind of did this as a joke. So the first time when he saw that this was the pose on the movie poster, he was floored. Like he never oh, thought this funny. was anything that was going to make it. And now I think, oh, my gosh. That is well. It. It's become an emoji. He's an emoji. Yeah, he's an emoji. Oh <laughs> he, my god! <gasps> it yeah, is an I mean, emoji. Can you be any more transcends than, generations? Yes. Yeah. So you're god. saying that was not created by a choreographer? That was something no. that he improved cheekily. Yes. Okay. Yeah. After a long day of this, you know, still photo kind of shoot. Yeah. Um, 
that's what he did. And lo and behold, we can see a silhouette of that. We don't even need to see his face. We know or exactly anything. what it is. Yeah. And our kids know what it is. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it represents disco and dance and all of that. So, um, yeah, that's the cover. Would you like me to talk about the inside of it? Yeah, tell us about it. Okay. Because this is what I remember when I talked about sitting on the, um, my friend's bedroom floor. I would just stare at these still photos that were on the inside. This is a double album, so we get to open it up. And there are 21 photos, actually, on this inside photo spread. John is in 20 of those photos. There's oh one that just has Karen Gorney or Stephanie, but the rest all have John in them in some way. And this is how I experienced the movie, was mm-hmm. looking at this. I didn't see it in the movie theater. I thought it was all about dancing. And so when I would see some of these other still shots from the motion picture, I'd be like, oh, I wonder who she is. She looks nice. You know, I'm looking at Donna Pescow and thinking, oh, was that his sister? And I just made up my own <laughs> little make story. Up because, yeah, yeah, I did that too. I did the same thing, because, yeah. And I think even looking at some of these pictures, I could tell – that uh, Karen Gorney was not a good dancer. They've got like one of these disco moves where John is all with his arm in the air. And is she's she doing like this? Very awkward. Yeah, she's just. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it right now. Super, yeah, kind yes, of like you, barely like snapping. In her yes. off-the-shoulder chiffon dress. Exactly. Yeah. And if you are um, happen to be one of our Patreon fo- followers, you would maybe see get to see some video of Kristen doing that. Shot that, oh my um, gosh, I'm gonna do it again just so they can can see it. it. Actually, why don't you stand up? (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna pose right now. Hold on, that was my chair, not that wasn't a fart. Okay, (laughs) so she's like this. Yeah, that's you knew it exactly. You got the half snap in, so that indeed, yeah, was the um. was the shot so um and i remember uh carolyn i did the same thing i would i would try to create the story by those pictures and Mm -hmm. i thought there was like some sort of almost like unattainable kind of thrill and romance to them it was kind of i don't know it was kind of risque looking to me and i mean the girls in the leotard in the one picture Mm -hmm. but i also remember thinking it was all just very beautiful to look at um you know oh yeah it was it was just the dance it was it formed your idea of quote unquote, dance is life. the disco. Well, yeah. of course, dance is life. Dance is life. Dance is that, life. Yeah. Right. But the disco. And the disco was this place that we were all supposed to get to someday. And I just knew I was going to get to the disco. I had no idea that a disco was a bar that you couldn't go there until you could drink. I didn't, I just, someday I was going to get to the disco and yeah. I was going to have my dance skin leotard with my matching yeah. dance skin skirt. That's right. But it was also <laughs> for me, I was, you know, I was only like eight years old, nine years old. So the disco, and, and we'll talk about in, um, in another episode this season when we talk about like solid gold and we talk about other disco type images that were going through our minds. For me, it was, um, when I say it was unattainable, cause it was, that was what like teenagers, grownups, you know, that was like the, almost like the, the really like glamorous, fun kind of I'm going to say naughty because that's not the right word, but like risky, risque kind of yeah. um, place that you would go. And I was intrigued by it, you know? Like that's maybe what adolescence would be like. That's yeah, or like your 20s, maybe like, like once you once you had your own yeah. cool apartment that was, you know, decorated like Rhoda's or whatever, you would this go to the to disco to. and you would mm-hmm. wear like, you know, the aerobic looking leotards with the really high mm-hmm. legs skirt. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so looking at those pictures in that album kind of brought all that to life for me. I mean, I was, like I said, eight, nine years old. So really what we're what we're talking about here is that that album cover that opened like a book was the movie for children. Right. That's a good way to put it, yeah. 
And I want to add to that my um, impression and some of the stuff I took away from it was probably different from than you because I was now learning I was moving to this part of the country. I was moving to New Jersey. Oh. I had relatives that lived in New York. I was going to be traveling oh. um, and visiting New York. So this was also an image to me of what it was like people in New York and how they, what they did and how they acted. And um, so I had a deeper kind of um, impression of what that movie was about than just solely the oh, dance. That's kind of profound, yeah. Carolyn. So basically oh. that's like me moving to Minnesota and thinking I'm going to work at WJM studios. Well, yeah. And look, exactly. you do now. Right. And now I work at WJM studios. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Okay, let's talk about the album itself and and the tracks. Like you said, Carolyn, we didn't call them tracks back then. I don't think we did. We just called them songs. Right. Um, <laughs> like you said, it's a double album set. There are two records. And I'm just going to read through the songs. Mm-hmm. And on side one, track one, we have Staying Alive. Number two, How Deep Is Your Love? Okay. Um, and you might remember... <laughs> Oh, I can see Kara, oh, Michelle's face right now. Is like, okay. oh, 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 okay. <laughs> I have one song to talk about on this album, yeah. and it's How Deep Is Your Love. Does everyone have half an hour and like a cigarette for me I know. for after <laughs> I talk about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. This is one of my all-time favorite, most romantic, like sexy songs of all time. And you guys, have you seen the video? <gasps> yes, I'm telling you, everyone listening, if you've seen the video um, back in the 70s, 80s, even the early 90s, please go watch it again now. It hits way differently now, ladies and gentlemen. Um, (laughs) Holy cow. First of all, you couple those words. I feel your, oh my God, just the Barry's face and he's just, they're all on like a turntable, which is really odd. And just the way it starts and... It's, I almost, I, I get, I get tongue-tied when I'm trying to talk about it, but, um, it, it adds so much to the song to watch the video. I don't know what it is about 1978 Barry Gibb now, and I think it has a lot to do with this song. Although I will say that there is a place for Robin and Morris in this video because the harmonies are so beautiful in it, and it is fun to watch them all walking and singing it. It is, um, yeah. But so, when he is, just starts, and it's just, I feel your eyes in the morning sun. And the way he just says it, and he just, it's really a tight close up on his face. Um, I'm going to stop talking about it now. Well, and let's just talk about that line. Okay, say that line one more time, Michelle. Is it? I know your, wait, now I'm going to, I know your eyes. I know your eyes in the morning sun. Isn't that it? I, I feel and your eyes. Robert oh my God. Why did I just, why to, is it? I'm getting too, um, I know I'm you're all too emotional. You're a little sweaty. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm wearing this I see poncho, guys. I see, I your, see your eyes. I see your eyes, see your eyes. in the morning okay. sun. Robert Stigwood said to the Bee Gees, I need a love song. And the way Barry Gibb talks about creating How Deep Is Your Love in this castle in France, and there is a shaft of sunlight that comes in and lands on the piano. I see your eyes in the morning sun. I mean, it gives you shivers. Mm-hmm. It actually is, I know your eyes. I thought that was right. Is the that first I thing know? I said. It is, I know I your know eyes in the morning sun. For somewhere when I said it again, I was sun. like, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel your touch me in the pouring, pouring rain. rain. Karaoke. the moment that you wonder I'm going to me, jump ahead a little bit because do you know that that was written for Yvonne Elliman to sing? 
It they was? were not supposed oh, to sing that. No. Oh, I got chills again. I know. And they because were supposed if, to sing If I Can't Have You. Yes. Oh, no. Oh, Another I'm Grace about, I totally I'm all agree. about Barry Gibbs singing this song. Yep. I mean, to ha- me. To yeah. me. Can you believe? I mean, that blew me away because I love um, If I Can't Have You. That's yeah. Yeah, the song that's I've got one. some fun facts about. But when I read that, I thought, are you kidding me? But Robert Stigwood, again, we got to love that guy. He just kind of thought. instincts are crazy. And you, yeah. yeah. His instincts and it's the harmonies too in that song that, yeah, that we would have missed, that would have right. been lacking but had we not had the three it. of them to sing they themselves. They thinking that they were going to sing it. They, did, oh. they wrote it thinking that this woman was going to sing it. Oh, my. Okay, I have or one fun. Or at least, fun- you know, that it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. One last fun fact about it. So um, How Deep Is Your Love bumped out Debbie Boone's 10-week run at the top <gasps> of the Billboard Hot 100 chart for You Light Up My Life um, in December 1977. And there it stayed for 17 weeks, which was the first song to spend that amount of time at number one since Chubby Checker's The Twist. And, you guys, it held that record until Boys to Men's End of Time, End of the Road. Isn't that I interesting? I just feel like I just feel like we're right. Like our feelings are correct. <laughs> That's right. My feelings are validated right now. And it's really just been the past year that I've had mm-hmm. this renewed love affair with that song. And it was just last December when I first saw the video, which I've now probably watched. You know how Spotify <laughs> does those it's songs your porn. you play? Yeah, exactly. It's as well, much you know as porn. That's pretty good the video that's, for how deep is your love? You know what? And that's actually that pretty much that's sums lovely. up what my porn is. Yeah. That is lovely. When you think about my pornography is how deep is your love? I yes. think that's mm-hmm. beautiful. Michelle, Mike, Mike. I just want to say Michelle has lovely porn. I mean, it's just it's lovely so porn. Lovely porn. That is really Thank my seed of porn. I'm with Seriously. you on that one. Hey, you know okay, what? The mind, the, yeah, the imagination can 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 just take off. Okay, so and after uh, so we have staying alive. We have how deep is your love? Then we have night fever, which we talked about. That is really what. Um, gave the movie its name. Then we have More Than a Woman performed by the Bee Gees. And then the last track on that side is If I Can't Have You performed by Yvonne Elliman, which Carolyn just said was supposed to be performed by the Bee Gees. Because that was my favorite track was If I Can't Have You. It's a good one. I love that song. So um, I wanted to say it was the first um, song off that album to hit number one that was not sung by the, the Bee Gees. Um, it knocked out. Do you have any idea what it knocked from the number one spot? Night Fever. After eight oh weeks. So Night Fever was on for mm-hmm. eight weeks. But yes, it knocked out the BG's uh, Night Fever. It's a big, big song. And Yvonne Elliman, she was relatively unknown, except for um, she was on Broadway. And mm-hmm. you might remember her as playing Mary Magdalene in the movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar, which was also produced by Robert Stiglitz. And she's fantastic in that Okay, so now that's that is our um, that's the first side. On the second side of the first album, we have the fifth of Beethoven, performed by Walter Mur- Murphy. Which is, I don't know, can we say this is the inspiration for Hooked on Classics? You take a classical <laughs> piece by Beethoven and you turn it into a disco hit? I mean, they played that on the radio. They did. That was I on the freaking song. radio. You know, they played a lot of instrumentals on the radio, though. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, number oh two Oh my God, Carolyn, was, I did too. Okay. What did you do? I missed that. She had oh, it, I had it as, as a 45. 45. And I was like, oh, oh my God, sure. I did too. Yes. I um, the next song is More Than a Woman, again, this time performed by Tavares. And this is the single that was a hit on the radio, not the Bee Gees version. Um, they also, Tavares, had their own backlash against them because they were labeled as disco. Again, they were not disco. They were an R&B group, but they got lumped in as disco. And they um, and they got some backlash for that. They won their only only Grammy for this song, More Than a Woman. The next song is another instrumental called Manhattan Skyline, which speaks to the theme that we spoke about in our last episode of getting out of Brooklyn and escaping to Manhattan. And the last song on that side is Calypso Breakdown, performed by Ralph McDonald, which was probably my least favorite song on this album. I did not care. For, whatever. It's Calypso. Calypso's yeah. fine. Okay, then we have the second record, side one. The first one is Night on Disco Mountain, which is another Hooked on Classics track. This is a disco version of a classical piece called Night on Bald Mountain by Mazursky. But I will challenge anybody. I'm pretty sure that the disco version is what lives in our head. I don't know that anybody could pull up the actual classical piece, except um, people who know more than me. <laughs> Mazursky's family. probably, And Mazursky's family. But, you know, this was probably <laughs> from the Mazursky. 1700s. <laughs> I think he's dead, dead or not dead. Just kidding. Oh, dead, dead. Oh, dead that's my mic. Man. Sorry, everyone. Um, the second track on that second album is Open Sesame by Cool and the Gang. This is pre-celebration. Mm-hmm. Number three is Jive Talking. This is taken, as we said before, from the album Main Course. And Jive Talkin' was actually used in a deleted scene from the movie, which took place the day after Tony's first night at the disco. Um, So the song doesn't actually appear in the movie because the scene was taken out. So Jive Talkin' never appears in the movie. That's a really good fact. Yeah. That'd be a great trivia question. I know. Um, Okay, next we have You Should Be Dancing, Dude in Your Neighbor's Butt. If you listen to okay, our wait, misheard yeah, lyrics can you please episode, make sure, can you please, <laughs> some of these people are just listening for the first time. Right? Could you please go ahead and so, explain that one? <laughs> in our misheard lyrics episode, we revealed that my friend Martha was certain that the Bee Gees were singing. Which is now, by the way, everybody. No, we don't, and that's how we all shall sing it from now on. Yeah, trust me, that is how you will sing it. Because that's how I sing so now. this was actually not an original song to the soundtrack either. Just like Jive Talkin', um, this one comes from one of their former albums. It comes from Children of the World from 1976. Uh-huh. Did anyone hear that song prior to Saturday Night Fever? No, because they and were now, pretty much blacklisted by then. I would say that is like the definition of Saturday Night Fever. That is the song that makes you go, here we go. Um, and the last track on that side is Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine. Side three, um, or well, it's the second album, side one. But I guess that would be side, yeah, three. side three. It's called side mm-hmm. three. I call that my roller rink um, side. The, the, those are the roller rink yeah. songs for me. Oh, oh yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. 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 
So then you flip it over, and we have a song. The first track is called Salsation, and that's another instrumental. This was a piece that was written. This was an emergency because um, Boz Skaggs had taken away Lowdown, and they had it was used in a rehearsal scene between Tony and Stephanie when they very they meet each other for the very no, yeah meet each other officially for the very first time, and they're going to dance together in the studio for the very first time. And they filmed the scene playing Lowdown, which is a big uh-huh. no-no because it means you can't remove the song from the film. And of course, Boz Skag says, you can't use my song. So what they had to do was remove all the sound from the dance rehearsal scene. And John Travolta and Karen Gorney had to re-record their dialogue. And they dubbed it over the top of the scene. And then David Shire, who is a composer, quickly composed this song that matched exactly the beat and the tempo of lowdown so they could that's what they're doing in the dance in the dance rehearsal scene before more than a woman it's like when they're going this and this like oh like a tango oh this right um the second song on that side is kg by mfsb and the last track is my favorite track which is disco inferno mm-hmm. by the tramps that's and this one. was a band the tramps actually played at the actual 2001 Odyssey, which is one of the reasons they were included on the soundtrack. They were really trying to give it an authentic vibe. So they were looking at, well, who played there? What kind of music was played there? Mm -hmm. And that's how the tramps get on. Um, Here are just three songs that didn't make it on the soundtrack. They were supposed to be in the movie. They were supposed to be on the soundtrack, and they got cut. Lowdown. No. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Because and we're, we're going to know we these songs? Of. Are we going to know, gonna know these, these songs? songs? Yeah, oh, you're wow. going to know them. Okay. The first one is Emotion by Samantha Singh. That's a good song. Okay, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could too. There's yeah. emotion that's singing me over. Which, of course, Tied the Bee Gees wrote. Yeah. Yeah. In my song. But if you don't come back. It's a good song. You know what I love? I love when I, you know, in this day and age of, um, well, in this day and age of MP4 players, but you know when (laughs) we first started getting iPods? No, just hear me out. Let me finish. (laughs) Stay with me. Do you remember when we first started getting, before pre-iPods, pre-MP4 players, you would would just hear a song if you had it on um, a CD or on a cassette or whatever. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I would constantly talk about songs that we loved in college or that we loved in our childhood, and but we couldn't quite think of them. We couldn't quite remember. And if one of us thought of it and we could then all of a sudden start singing it, I would get filled with almost like a lump in my throat, like I'm going to cry oh, because I would think, yeah. oh my God, it's been decades since I heard that. So now we have Spotify playlists and stuff where we can basically curate our own playlists of every song we've ever loved from whatever decade. So it's very rare that a song title or someone sings a song that I get that feeling again, that I think I don't have that song on. And that is one of them that you just did this emotions. <gasps> we did it. Like when I started singing it again, I was like, oh my God, I love that song. And I was like, I have not heard that song in decades. And I love that because it's rare that that happens anymore. We need a word for that too. Yes. We do. Gail, Gail, Gail from our society. Gail, yeah. She tends to name these phenomena that we come up yeah. with. So, so when you well, hear a song I think you could that you use the word emotion in it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah maybe it's just called, or we got Samantha Sanged. Yeah. <laughs> and I, 
But right after we record this, believe and see. So then, what will mm-hmm. I do? To I will overplay it. I will go play it yeah. ten times in a row on Spotify. We have to pause here for Michelle to go and play Samantha <laughs> saying emotion. Okay, the second. Just ask one yeah. question. Yeah. Do the Bee Gees ever sing that song? Yes, they're in the yeah. song. Okay, they're and they in do, it. Okay. They sing it in concert. They sing back up. So you hear the falsetto. That's why I'm going emotion. Right. Because I I'm don't thinking... think that Samantha Sang did it that way. That is Barry Gibb. Okay. I'm going to have falsetto. to listen to that. Because, yeah, in yeah. my head, it's the Bee Gees. And I'm thinking, man, I would lose if I had was on, like, name that tune and had to say who sang you would. the song. Right. You would lose. Well, I would but I remember her name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They wrote so, okay. it. They sing back up. Um, the know. second song is... Um, these are all written by the Bee Gees song. These are all Bee Gees songs. Okay. These are all written by the Bee Gees, by the mm-hmm. way. They're all Bee Gees songs. Our love, don't throw it all God damn it. Oh, I love that Our song. love, don't throw it all away. Don't take that Which out. actually oh. became oh, an Andy Gibbs song and That's went right. on to the Shadow Dancing album. Don't throw it all away. Don't throw it all away. Okay. Song too. That is this, and then the last one that got cut is a song called Warm Ride, again by the Bee Gees, <laughs> which was also given to Andy Gibb. And that's what Michelle gets when she listens to How Deep Is Your Love. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> she just got a warm ride. Um, and they put that on Andy Gibb's After Dark album in 1979. Well, is aren't they good? nice? I've never heard They're of like, it. here, take our rejects, little brother. Yeah, Warm Ride. Ugh. I don't like mm-hmm. the title. I agree. I don't. Well, I don't then. like that title at all. <laughs> I do. Slow ride yeah, is better. Okay. Slow ride that works. Yeah. Warm ride not so much. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the placement of these songs, that was the genius. That was the genius of Robert Stigwood. The placement of the songs in the movie actually popularized a device that you will see later in tons of movies of the next decade, like Flashdance and Footloose. This, can we just say the 80s is kind of the golden age of soundtracks, mm-hmm. if you think about it? Yeah. And this device was using pop music as narrative. So it's not a musical. The character doesn't stop and break into song to tell you what's happening or how they feel about something. Instead, the song playing underneath the scene tells the viewer what's happening or how the character feels. So the opening scene of Saturday Night Fever is the perfect example of this. It's so iconic, not just for John Travolta's strut with his paint cans swinging back and forth, <laughs> but because it's paired with Stayin' Alive. So that's how we all know this scene, Stayin' Alive and the strut. And if you listen to the words in Stayin' Alive, the very fir- this is the very first song where we meet Tony. It's the first scene in the movie. It's almost prophetic. It's telling you everything you need to know about our main character. Here are the lyrics. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. Music loud and women warm. I've been kicked around since I was born. And then he even says, I know, it's crazy. I'm a dancing man. I just can't lose. But the haunting part is that low refrain that repeats over and over again. I'm going nowhere, somebody help me. I'm going nowhere, somebody help me. And you guys, I have to remind you, this was written before 
Stewart in Spain had even heard of the movie Saturday Night Fever without ever reading the script. And yet the lyrics mirror exactly well, what was written about okay. in the article that the movie was based on. Can we right. just we just have to stop for a second. I'm okay, sorry. I'm ready to stop. Is like, I know. I just feel like this is a holy moment or something. Let's I just know. calm down. So, I know. Calm me up is, down. Like, is, yeah. is time a real, you know, is that just a human <laughs> mm-hmm. whatever construct? We? And were they, I just, I cannot fathom that. It's just amazing. It's, it's magical, whatever. And I need to add, I need to add, this is the important, this is the important moment you've been waiting for. Oh. What is the one scene that was filmed with the BG song? It is the opening scene with the strut to staying alive. Every other BG song was dubbed over the top and they danced to Boz Skaggs and they danced to Stevie Wonder. This is the only scene where the Bee Gees had side by side with John Travolta. Yeah. Let's make this scene together. Well, and it's actually great that they did because like that is so perfect and iconic. I mean, he's strutting to yeah. the beat and it's so, yeah. and it, like you said, we didn't, I don't think I realized it at the time, but it's setting up the movie. It's almost like it the prologue. The whole movie. Yeah. I mean, the line I remember too, I think I talked, well, I've, I've thought about this before. I maybe mentioned to, it to you, but where they say, whether you're a mother or whether you're a brother, oh my God, a lot. Right. and I just think of like, oh my <gasps> gosh, those were two, and those people were just trying to Stay alive. I mean, it was like this is yeah. this is what we do, mm-hmm. and I just think, oh my gosh! The, you go back to the, what, going back to the for, to the episode just prior to this, where we talk about Father Frank yes. and how and his the mother, mother gets slapped is, around. Right. Yes, and mm-hmm. they're just trying to stay alive, and Father Frank's battling his own life choices right. and real, you know his goals and what's he going to do with his life. And whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive. And you know, staying a lot alive. of times on this yeah. podcast, we like to get really introspective and maybe dive a little too deep and make meaning out of things that maybe some people listening are like, you guys, it was just ice castles. But <laughs> I don't think here anyone can argue with us. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I'm going to um, backtrack just a little bit, mm-hmm. Kristen, on something you said is using m- music as narrative is so powerful. It adds another level to it, for sure. Absolutely. It really does. Um, and an emotional level, too, when it's told, yeah, when it's yeah. that musical piece. So, for instance, More Than a Woman, um, when that song is played um, in the movie, and you listen to those words, it's like, oh, yeah, this he's seeing Stephanie, and she is more than a woman to him. She is this, as we talked about in episode, in our other episode about Saturday Night Fever. She represents freedom. This is a whole different mm-hmm. level for him. It is not just another female. Um, it is class, sophistication. achievement, a sophistication. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's that other side of the bridge. Um, so much more than just a woman. A woman. And it's the first, the first time we hear this song is in the rehearsal studio when he's dancing with Stephanie for the first time. And that never occurred to oh. me until you said that, Carolyn. It's almost like I want to call more than a woman Stephanie's song. I know, I know. Okay, the other appreciation for it. The really absolutely, absolutely. And now I think I think about what Robert Stigwitt did. Did this movie hit so hard because of that? Because he added the emotional element. 
We had a movie about some shitty people. But without this emotional element of the music, would we have connected with it in the way that we did? Mm-hmm. Right. So thank you, Robert Stigwood. Um, I want to talk about If I Can't Have You, because this hit me super hard. We talked about Annette in part one of this episode. Annette is the neighborhood girl who's been crushing on Tony forever and is really willing to sublimate herself in his service. And it's really hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. Um, and the scene is Annette finally agreeing to make it with you. She's saying, I'll have sex with you, Tony. She's been trying to be a nice girl. And finally, she realizes she can't get Tony unless she has sex with him. So she's like, I decided I'm going to make it with you. And she holds out a handful of condoms to him. And he sneers and he walks away. And the song, If I Can't Have You, is playing underneath the scene while she stands there holding out this handful of condoms. And the look on her face is so heartbroken. If I can't have you... I don't want nobody, baby. It hits you right here. It does. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it's it's just one of my favorite songs well, from just, the album. It's crazy mm-hmm. to me now. Like I said, I need to go back and rewatch it. And if those of you listening um, now, if you listen to our um, part, our episode last week where we talked uh, focused on the movie. I said at the beginning, and I said I think again at the end. I, you know, no, it's not my favorite movie. I don't like it. It's still never going to be my favorite movie, but after our discussion last week, and especially after this week, I'm seeing how so much of this movie, not, well, certainly the soundtrack, but so many of just even the plot points were really intentional. And so I feel like I really do need to go back and watch it through a different lens now. And I think I, I think my opinion would change. Yeah. I think that's so profound. (laughs) I think that's really interesting, Michelle. It's shedding light on something that they need to know about. Mm -hmm. So no, Mm -hmm. you may not enjoy it, but you have a much greater appreciation Appreciation for what it was trying to show us. Yeah. And especially now with the soundtrack, I'm very curious to go back and I I didn't pick up on that. I didn't pick up that like the lyrics to the songs or that if I can't have you was playing under that scene. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah. And you know, Kristen, you said, um, and it really made me think it almost... The addition of the music makes those characters human, I think. You know, if it's just dialogue, they're shitty people in a lot of cases. But that addition of the music really brings an element of kind of humanity to and and kind of the sadness. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. they're shitty people. But there's even more going on, Mm -hmm. I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, their situation was not awesome. So the commercial success of Saturday Night Fever, you guys have already talked about how these songs were so popular and shot to number one. It's nothing short of historic. And the soundtrack also drives people to the movie theater. Every time a new single gets played on the radio, more people go see the movie and vice versa. How many people went to the movie and then immediately went to the record store to buy the soundtrack? I mean, it was just this cycle that fed upon itself. Didn't the soundtrack come out first? The soundtrack did come out first. It came out on November 15th, 1977, before the movie was released in December. And that I think it was the first week in December. Yeah. In hopes that it would drive people to the theaters, which it did. For, yeah. Um, it became the second biggest movie of 1977, with just three weeks left in the year. So it definitely helped drive people to the theater. And by the time the movie opened, the soundtrack was already selling... 200,000 copies a day. A day. Gosh. That's crazy. 
A million copies were sold before the movie even opened. It stayed on the charts. The album stayed on the charts for so long that the Bee Gees would go on to win Grammys in both 1978 and 1979. (laughs) That's how long it stayed on the charts. All the other artists are like, not fair. Right. I know. It's true. the Bee Gees were kind of, you know, on the downslide before this yeah. happened. I mean, that I'll is tell you about that in a minute. Yeah, amazing. Talk about a comeback, right? Mm-hmm. And remember how we mentioned that the Bodyguard um, being the best—that was the best-selling soundtrack of all time. But none of us could really think. I mean, without looking, we had to look it up. Without right. without thinking about it and looking it up, we couldn't think of any other songs besides I I I I. Well, here are the songs from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and how they fared on the charts. So, like you said, Michelle, How Deep Is Your Love goes to number one in December of 1977. In February of 1978, Stayin' Alive is number one. And number two is Andy Gibbs' um, Love Is Thicker Than Water. So that's another Bee Gees written tune. So Bee Gees in number one and number two. Night Fever goes to number one in March 1978, and it would remain there until May 6th. If I Can't Have You knocks Night Fever out of the number one spot in May. By June, the number one song is Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb. Again, it's not from the soundtrack, but it's a Bee Gees written tune. And that would become the biggest selling song of 1978. Their domination was so complete that in March of 1978, the Billboard Top 10 looked like this. Number one, Night Fever. Number two, Love is Thicker Than Water by Andy Gibb, written by the Bee Gees. Number three, Stayin' Alive. Number four, Emotion by Samantha Sang, written by the Bee Gees. There were some other songs in there. And then, um, still in the top ten, If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elliman, written by the Bee Gees. Which means that in March of 1978, five of the top ten songs were written by the Bee Gees. Cha-ching! I am so, this is my feeling about this. I'm so happy I was alive for this. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to so... say, I, I honestly thought you were about to go, I'm so proud of them. <laughs> well, right? They came back from some hard stuff. I, love, I mean, if you've watched did. that Bee Gees documentary, we know they had some really tough years. So it was very I'm happy, tough. I'm happy for them. Um, and actually, in a Billboard retrospective of the of the entire decade of the 70s, the Bee Gees had five songs in the top 10 of the top 100 songs of the 70s. Wow. Oh, I my mean, gosh. Domination, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. No wonder they're, like, in our blood. They're in our cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So of- the, critics, um, the critics wanted to hate this album. But like the rest of the world, they couldn't. <laughs> they tried really hard. And the Village Voice, which is notorious for being super snarky and hating on everybody, they called the Bee Gees Beatles clones singing like mechanical mice with an unnatural <laughs> sense of rhythm. But in the same review, they said, but if you've decided that this is the disco album you're going to try, I can't blame you. <sighs> and that, I guess, is high praise yeah, from the man. Village Voice. That's high praise. Wow. It was just very difficult mm-hmm. to look away and not be propelled to dance in your bedroom. Oh, <laughs> in absolutely. 1978. It touched parts of me. Let's do, we'll just leave it at yeah. that. And even hearing mm-hmm. that music now. Well, the whole world. And we talked a little bit, like in the intro, you said it changed the landscape of music, Carolyn. And mm-hmm. what I, some people will dispute that and say, no, no, disco was 
was alive and well and actually on its way out by the time Saturday Night Fever came around. And that is true. And the Bee Gees never claim to have created disco. They, are, they say, we didn't do this. There were so many people prior to us doing this. This is R&B. But what it did do was every single performer, artist, solo act group after Saturday Night Fever had to have a disco hit or a quasi-disco hit. I mean, Kiss had a disco hit. <laughs> hit. I was made for loving you, baby. Kiss had um, the Rolling Stones with Miss You had a disco hit. Um, Barry Manilow, Copacabana. Is that disco? Not exactly. But it is. is it a dance floor mm-hmm. song? Right. Absolutely. So everybody, Neil Diamond, what was his dance floor tune? Everybody was in a rush to get to the studio to record something that could be played on the dance floor after the Bee Gees and Saturday Night mm-hmm. Fever. You're like your own little Amy Lively. <gasps> oh my God, you have just made me so happy. But you are. You are like an encyclopedia of knowledge of music stuff. Oh, I know none that of that. Makes me happy. Okay, so you guys, hearing all of that, I find it so interesting that when 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 I say we, but I, I'm saying me, but I think I could say the collective we. When we think of the 70s, we often think Bee Gees. Or when we think of Bee Gees, we often think, oh, music of the 70s. But in reality, they were really just like a two to three year flash in the pan. Um, I mean, they were a big flash, certainly. They were like a grease fire, mm-hmm. right? But then poof, fire extinguisher. Because... You just said in March, I think you said, of 78, they had five Mm -hmm. of the top 10. Go forward just a little over a year. In June of 1979, the Bee Gees are still on top of the world. They have have Grammys for the soundtrack, um, all those Billboard hits, um, and they're playing 60,000-seat arenas across America. I mean, disco and the Bee Gees were king. But you guys, in a span of just six months, the bottom dropped out of the disco craze. And the Bee Gees, who had been lords of the airwaves for the past two years, found themselves banned from the country's most influential radio stations. Nobody wanted to touch them. People say that what happened to the Bee Gees was unprecedented in popular music. Because what happens is, the very literally, the demolition of disco was started, quite literally, by this Chicago radio shock jock named Steve Dahl, who hated disco. And in July of 1978, he had this album-burning, like, celebration, party, event at Comiskey Park, where about 10,000 people showed up at the ballpark, and many of them clutching Bee Gees records, um, and they were tossed, literally, into the bonfire. And they mm-hmm. say that, really, one of the things that fueled much of the hatred for disco was homophobia. Um, yeah. You know, white men, especially between the ages of 18 and 34, who loved rock, they felt threatened by it. They felt excluded. Um, I like to think those same white men, many of those same white men, felt, you know, a little bit like, oh, that's me, and I don't want to admit that that's me. And, you know, so what right. do they do? They, mm-hmm. well, that's, the, but that's the honest truth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All these closeted um, men who can't feel like they can express, they, what well, are they and there's do? the racism oh, I'm burn aspect this of it too, right? There was there, a racism um, aspect of it too, that mm-hmm. if you watch that Bee Gees documentary, they go into that. Um, and I think we talked about that a little bit in our we episode. We did in too. that episode about the Bee Gees, yeah, how so um, many people came in with, with albums that weren't disco, they were just R&B. albums by mm-hmm. people of color. Mm-hmm. That's R&B it. and disco. Um, and yeah. it was was a big, a big burning. And so this happens. And so by February of 1980, American radio had adopted a virtual ban on disco and the Bee Gees quickly became the butt of endless jokes and comedy sketches. And then sadly came their, the spiral and the revamped sound they tried to, 
the Bee Gees tried to do, um, and then more spirals, and then pretty much, you guys, the end of the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I well, just they- find it so interesting that it was that it was like I said, a flash in the pan. It was a bright flash, but when I often think, I I, I feel like now now I'm I'm actually shocked that it was that their that their success was so short lived. Mm-hmm. When anything is that big, a backlash is coming, mm-hmm. and that is just human nature, I guess. There are a lot of reasons for a backlash. And so what they quickly realized they had to do was go underground. And they, success is a funny word. Um, They went underground and they started writing things for other people. Mm -hmm. And they had humongous success in selling songs to other people. We just didn't know they were Bee Gees songs because they weren't singing them. Except Barry Barry and Barbara had some pretty Barry and Barbara, guilty. Yeah, Yeah. Because you got nothing to be done. Yeah, that's true. And part of this backlash came not just from consumers, but from the record industry itself, because there were so there's so much Bee Gees on the radio, they couldn't get their artists on the radio. They were taking up all of the airtime. Well, I'm sorry, they were just that good. That's what we want. I don't to think hear. they needed to be punished for that for being great. I know. But yeah, I know. Yeah, so interesting that yeah. Then just like that, poof, they were they were over. But you know, um, and then what I find is so sad is how that affected them personally. And of course, it would. It would affect yeah. anybody yeah. to have that amount of fame and then to just be like the butt of jokes and have your your songs just not shown. People just weren't showing up at their concerts. People had mm. T-shirts that said "Kill the Bee Gees" and stuff oh, at their concerts Gosh. and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's tragic. But again, and if you everybody watch, watch that watch that documentary on HBO Max. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. And if you watch Barry Gibbs' acceptance speech for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so well-deserved, by the way, you can tell he's still pretty salty. He's mm-hmm. wounded about the backlash, and he says, you may know us as um, the enigma with the stigma, is what he calls it. And still, mm-hmm. they were able to rise above and be the songwriters that they truly wanted to be. And I think their moment... Um, in the sun came when Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake, you know, they did their Barry Gibb talk show, which is yeah. hilarious. Mm-hmm. And they've done it several times, poking fun at the Bee Gees. But then who comes on the Barry Gibb talk show but Barry Gibb? And the world explodes. And we now know that he's beloved. We can see that Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake are falling over themselves in love with Barry Gibb and that Barry Gibb has accepted yeah, the stigma's over. I'm it now. You guys, mm-hmm. I don't, I never, may, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm in the wrong, like, age bracket. And I, I, I don't, I mean, all of us would be. But did you guys ever remember feeling like there was a stigma against the Bee Gees? I don't oh, remember. I did. Oh, yeah. I don't. I just mm-hmm. remember always liking them. And then I just felt like, just like with a lot of music, you know, you move on to other stuff. And it was I mean, inextricable know. with with disco because I was a disco queen and I loved R and B and I loved funk <laughs> I and I disco loved queen. Bee Gees. Yeah, I'm still a disco queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like I had to put my tastes underground. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's one reason I became a dancer is because what do you dance to? You dance to dance music, which tends to be funk, R and B, disco. At least in the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I got my yeah. fix. So I never ceased being a Bee Gees fan, but I was quiet about it. Oh, yeah. And I just, you know, it wasn't the popular thing. And we actually would make fun of the people that I know we've had this discussion that members only jackets are not disco. But in my memory, the the people that wore those 
were also the people we called like the di- – I know. But you didn't go to my high school, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> Those who you can't see, I'm raising my we, hand. Um, I love lumped- but I didn't think of them as disco either. Yeah. I know. I know. We've talked about that. But some reason, the slicked <laughs> yeah. back kind of Philadelphia Italian kids that went to my school, their hair was all – they um, wore members-only jackets, I guess. Well, now, however, the, the leg warmers I wore over my jeans with my members-only oh, jacket, though, might have made me a little bit disco-y. I don't know. But we just, I mean, I hate to say it, people made fun of that genre mm-hmm. of music and the people that listened to it. And that was like, you oh, don't want to be one of those I don't, people. I didn't have that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I think at Again, this point I was younger in time, I'm the baby in the yeah. group. I think yeah. it's very safe to say that at this moment in time, their reputation has been resurrected and the and their legacy is so solid and they're beloved, beyond beloved. Mm-hmm. And so much of this movie, like we talked about before, it just seemed faded. There was music being created for a story that the Bee Gees didn't even know existed. And there were faded missteps that added to that, like Boz Gags not giving permission to use his music. And this is the last bombshell that I'm going to drop on you today. Michelle, do you remember in in part one in our last episode when you were asking for the, you were talking about the director and you were asking for the name of the director and Carolyn and I are going, John Badham, John Badham. You're like, oh no, I thought his name started with an A. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was just the smallest of little snippets. So the original director of Saturday Night Fever, whose name started with an A, you were correct was fired because he wasn't getting along with John Travolta and he wanted the Bee Gees off the project. (laughs) He wanted the Bee Gees out. He was pushing to boot the Bee Gees off the film. And then in the, in the end, I think we can all agree that Saturday Night Fever was the Bee Gees movie as much as it was John Travolta. Mm -hmm. So if you like today's episode, you will love the HBO documentaries, Mr. Saturday Night, which is about Robert Stigwood, the creator and producer of Saturday Night Fever, and also the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? And I want to give a special thank you to Jeff After, author of the book Tragedy, which was not just an amazing resource for this episode, it was also a totally addictive book to read. It would be a great pick for your book club. Um, So thank you, everybody. Thank you for showing up and listening to us. This was an important topic for us, and we will see you next time. Well, as you guys can imagine, we have so much more to talk about. And so if you would like to hear a little bit more about that discussion, you can join us over on Patreon with our After the Episode discussion, where you'll get to hear more about what we have to say. You can go to patreon.com. You can become a member, and you can put into the search bar Pop Culture Preservation Society. Right now, we'd like to take a moment to thank everyone for listening and for sharing our podcast with everyone you know, seriously, everyone you know. And for those of you who've clicked those stars or written a nice review, an extra big thanks and hug to you. Uh, And we'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to our supporters over on Patreon for quite literally helping our podcast and society keep on trucking. This week, our patrons of the week are, drumroll, Shane, Diane, Sherry, Margaret, Christina, and Mike Noonan. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The PCPS is made possible by the support of people like all of you. 
Um, and one last thing, if you subscribe to our weekly reader, which you can do on our website at poppreservationists.com, uh, we'll put the link there to both the book tragedy and the documentary, Mr. Saturday Night, in your next edition coming out this Friday. Uh, so make sure to check your promotions folder if you are a subscriber. If you aren't seeing our weekly reader newsletters in your inbox, sometimes, um, you know, the, the email servers bury our weekly readers. Boo. Shame, shame. <laughs> In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the roommates on Three's Company. To good times. To happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. Cheers. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. We had a dream, we don't travel together, spread a little.